First up, Bill Shireman from Future 500. So we talked about cross-sector. This is somebody who lives cross-sector, bringing together businesses, social organizations and nonprofits, and governments to solve intractable issues. So Bill, over to you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Good morning, everyone. Uh, and I'm happy to make this an interactive discussion if you want to, if you want to interrupt, and interrupt me, as they say, as I go. When Avon partners with 180,000 women to raise a half billion dollars to support the Avon Walk for a Cure to Breast Cancer, when Nike partners with uh, elite women athletes in 20 different countries to champion the idea of women's power and to say that you can make yourself through your commitment to your goals, when Coca-Cola commits that they will support women's empowerment on the part of five million women entrepreneurs across the world. These companies are not only building their brands, they are also building loyalty on the part of the customer base that they find most appealing to them. And they are also providing a degree of protection for themselves for those inevitable times when they come to be challenged by or vulnerable to the name, blame, and shame campaigns that are carried out relentlessly by social activist groups to try to call attention to the important issues of the day by attaching them to company names that have billion-person impacts. This is the modern form of activism, and it's more and more effective as social media comes to dominate our style of interaction with one another. This is where a lot of these marquee enterprises that come to represent brands and give substance to brands often start. And this is where our organization, Future 500, often begins its work. Our groups uh, is dedicated to finding common ground between corporations and activists, between power and purpose. We work to prevent and resolve conflicts between global brands and retailers and the activist community on both the right and the left. And we try to find the right kinds of partnerships that build substance into brands and that provide the kind of protection that are needed. It's easy to see, and everybody in this room knows, why companies that have strong brand values worry about social issues and what side of the fence they're regarded as being a part of. If you're a major brand, if you're a top 100 brand, it's not unlikely that your brand value comprises 50% or more of your total corporate value. In the case of a company like Coca-Cola, it's more like 70%. That means you strip away all of the physical assets and intellectual assets of these companies, and they still maintain 30%, 50%, of their market value. That's astonishing. But it also means that they're vulnerable and that even a small nick in the value of that brand can uh, impose a significant cost. This is the cost of a 1% decline in brand value. And as you can see, you're talking about numbers from $100 million to over a billion dollars, depending on the company. This is just from every 1% nick that a campaign may take off the allure of a company. And this, in some degrees, under 
represents the cost because what these issues can do is to take away the luster of a brand and take away the growth potential of a brand. It can say that this brand, which used to be trendy and hot and cool, is now cold and, uh, and no longer worth a price premium. And that's what some of these companies have discovered over time. These are some of the impacts that, uh, that companies see when they find themselves involved in a conflict situation. The Exxon Valdez oil spill of 1989, followed by a 5% stock decline in the value of the company. Nike in 1990s, when they became the poster child company representing child, representing child labor, when consumer polls indicated that two things came to mind when the name Nike uh, uh, was presented to them, athletics and bad labor practices. That began a downward trend in their market share from 55% to 39% in the space of five or six years. And most important, it took away that luster that the brand had had until that time. And Nike very effectively turned that around by becoming a champion and a leader in that cause and has now restored their brand and restored their, their market power. But Shell found this in the Brent Spar incident. Mattel has found it time and time again when they hit snags. BP, of course, found it with the Gulf oil spill issue. Now, recovery is strong from these statistics. 40%, anywhere from 40% to 100% of these declines are recovered within six months or so. It's hard to tell what the long-term impact of these incidents is. But we know that they do have sometimes a lasting impact on people's impressions of these brands. And that can be extremely important. So why, do, why are companies blamed for the ills of the world? There are psychological and philosophical reasons. Primarily, the broad belief shared by both liberals and conservatives that companies are basically selfish. And unfortunately, this uh, mythology, which of course has a tremendous amount of truth to it, is perpetuated by the idea that the purpose of a company is to maximize profits, to maximize return for shareholders. And we think that that's backwards, that profits, the purpose of profits is to advance social purpose in all enterprises. All enterprises are social enterprises. But because of that mythology, the liberal community, which tends to believe that people are selfish, and so when they do harm, it's because they've been corrupted by a selfless institution, and that's usually a corporation, they're happy to live out this narrative and to believe very readily that a company has done evil because they're fundamentally selfish. And conservatives tend to believe that both people and companies are selfish at nature. And when they do good, it's because they've been disciplined by a higher force. In the case of people, they've been disciplined by religion. In the case of companies, they've been disciplined by a free market competition. And so both the left and the right readily understand the narrative that corporations have done wrong. And that's one of the reasons that narrative works so well in the media and politics. The other reason that activists target companies is because companies are more adaptive, more responsive than government today. In a time of government gridlock, where you can't get anything through Congress without auctioning it off to a variety of, of vested interest groups to provide the votes to get it through, Activists more and more look to the corporate community as the place where they can get support. So even though they may believe that corporations are fundamentally selfish, they actually have more hope and more belief that corporations can do good than they do in government. And that's a key opportunity for the companies in this room. 
Why target a brand? As everyone in this room knows, a brand is not just a company, a product, a package, a logo. A brand has the attributes of a human being. A brand is the soul of the product or of the company in some respect. And it's what gives you the distinct human qualities that give consumers a reason to be loyal to you. But in a transparent world, it's important that that not just be flash, that that be substantive, that you actually live out your purpose as a company. And this is why we begin to move from the paradigm that corporations exist to maximize profits to the paradigm that they maximize profits in order to carry out a purpose. And that's an important transition to be making. So, very often, the strategy in campaigns is to undo the qualities of the brand, to essentially demonize the company as, the, as not just selfish, but the epitome of evil. By demonizing the company, you take away those human qualities. You undermine the brand. And tribally, this is something that we respond to quite readily. We all form our tribes, and we believe that the members of our tribe, of our group, are the human beings. And if you'll notice, when we engage in warfare and when we engage in, in prejudice, it generally involves dehumanizing another group of people, desensitizing us to their humanity, pretending that they are just mechanistic machines that are not neutral but actually negative in their impact, whole populations of people. And that's the psychology that works when, you are, when you're dealing with a corporate campaign. You make the assertion, which people are preconditioned to accept, that companies are evil, they're selfish, they only do what's good for them, for their bottom line. And then you attach that to your issue, and it provides a credible argument, and journalists, I used to be a journalist, so I know how this happens, journalists write the same stories over and over again, just, just changing the characters and the circumstances, and so you see those stories perpetuate. So, how, as brands, do you restore the soul? Humanizing the company is the fundamental objective that you need to have when you're engaging with stakeholders who can impact the value of your brand. If you're an engineering-oriented company, and I know there are most of the companies in this room are not so much, but the classic error that's made by engineering-oriented companies is to provide the numeric solution, provide the quantitative solution to the problem that people are bringing to them, to the deliver the solution. The key is really to establish a human relationship first because activists will not care what you know until they know that you care. That caring comes first. Once you establish your humanity, then they will listen to you. So, how do you protect the soul of the brand? How do you deal with risks that are imposed by issues that emerge that may impact your brand? And how do you create and find and capitalize on opportunities in this sphere. Every year, Future 500 gets our team together and we identify what the top 10 issues are that are going to be affecting, uh, affecting brands. And in this year, five of those issues are safe and healthy food, climate, energy, and water, broadband and transparency, toxic materials, and forestry. These are all areas mostly of, rich, of risk, but also of opportunity. Each of these risk areas is surrounded by frames that encompass large numbers of consumers. 
the women's power center frame, 73% of buying power, the millennial generation, the minority majority, political uncommitted, healthy green creatives. These are all large bodies of consumers that represent not just political power, but also consumer buying power, and that your brands are a part of already. So if you seize the opportunities in these frames, you can build the kinds of loyalties and brand associations that help protect you in the case of issues that you may become vulnerable to. So you can see, I won't go through these, within each of these frames, there are many issues that animate the people there. And if you are active in advancing these frames, then you're going to be more successful in preventing these issues from blowing up for you. Women's power is probably the biggest concentrated uh, uh, market, if you will. $9 trillion of buying power. And these are the kinds of issues that folks in the women's power community are, are interested in. In education, in career, in earning, and in spending, the power of women is on the rise across the board much more quickly than it is for men. And they control the purse strings for much of the buying that happens out there. So obviously, companies are interested in appealing to this community. But how do you convey, how do you sort through the hundreds of women's empowerment-oriented groups across the globe? You don't do it by trying to engage with all of them because you can't. You basically follow three steps, and that is first, you rank the issues. If you look at the issues in the women's empowerment arena, there are two of them here that are quite controversial, pro-choice and pro-life. But in between that, there's an array of issues that are compelling in their interest and that unite the left and the right in all of those frames. So you rank the issues, you rank the frames that are important to you. Women's empowerment, health, green, political, and so on. You prioritize two or three stakeholders in these communities, just the two or three that might be strategically most important for you. Not randomly, you want funders, you want experts, and you want communicators to be among the core, uh, the core group that you're engaged with. And then you plan and engage with them. You focus on them. So, the objective of all of this is to move from a paradigm of blame and shame which will always work in the media, which will always work in politics, but to begin to move toward power and purpose, where we bring the power of companies together with the purpose of social activists and others to try to accomplish something good and make reality of the brand. This is what Future 500 is about, and I think this is what this conference is about. It's something that empowers the individual, that motivates the individual, that's exciting, and that gives some meaning to your life and to your career. I encourage you all and I congratulate you all for being engaged in this process. Thank you very much.